Welcome to Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. That's a good sounding beer. That is. It's going to be a good day. I'm Evan Gartner. And I'm Mike Yagley. So, we're in the second uh, second episode talking, this is episode number 73, um, and we're in the second episode talking about the gospel for the second Sunday in Advent. This is from Luke 21, verses 25 to 33. I'll read the gospel lesson, and just know today we're picking up at verse 27, but I'll start there at verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, we spent the last episode talking about that first part, uh, which were the signs of the last day, and we went through all the different stuff that's going on, that's going to happen. There's the, uh, what were, it was like earthquakes. Oh, yeah, the sun, the moon, the stars. The... Yeah, everything's going wrong, but, but Luther makes a point over and over again that nobody's going to notice. You know, it's like, yeah, this stuff is happening, but one way or another people are going to say, eh, this happens all the time. And, or people and, might be in terrible distress, but they're not going to see the comfort of the gospel. Right. And and so this is, now we're getting into the part of this reading that I have to be frank. When I, when I read this reading um, in my life, previous to reading Luther, uh, I sort of fell into the just hearing about all the terrible things and missing out on this great promise that is hidden, not hidden, it's there. In, in, it's it will be there in plain sight. If all these other things are a little bit more hidden in their ordinariness or their everydayness, this is going to be unmistakable. So uh, what the, 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 the promise here is when these things begin to take place, look up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And, and so... The, what Luther is saying is basically, here you may say, who can lift up his head? I'm just going to read directly from Luther here. Who can lift up his head uh, in the face of such terrible wrath and judgments? And uh, then he says, you know, that, therefore they wait and long and pray for redemption from sin and evil as we pray also in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come. But if we are true Christians, we will earnestly and heartily pray this prayer but if we do not pray heartily and earnestly, we are not yet true Christians. So when he, what he's getting at here is that this is, this is all part of thy kingdom come. The, the end days is, is what, when, when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, we are, among other things, if you read your mm-hmm. large catechism, uh, but one of, the, one of the big things that we're praying for is the kingdom to come. The kingdom for Christ to come. And and so... So, Mike, if you want to be freed from sin, 
If you want to be freed from death, you want to be freed from hell, you should desire and long and love the fact that this coming is on its way. Right, right. And that's that's Luther's point is that, you know, and, and so as, as we get into this, Luther begins and he has, I'm going to say he has probably five or six paragraphs uh, about this. And it's sort of interesting because in paragraphs 39 and 40, he says, well, what about us? What about those of us who are afraid? And his answer, I'm going to... It's tell, tough. It's tough. Oh, well, you're damned. If you are afraid about the coming of Christ, you're damned. Yeah. Which is a little harsh. <laughs> I, think, I think that's actually really harsh. So that's Luther's first position is, is okay, you're damned. You're, you, you lack faith. You're not looking forward to Christ's coming. You're, you're, you're comfortable in your sin and comfortable with all. And he takes it to the very worst possible position is where he starts out with. And, and this is where I think he then in paragraph 41 adds a comfort. He says, the damned are the ones who are eternally afraid that their sin is not going to be taken away, and that when Christ comes in judgment, they will have a reason for their fear to increase. Right. And, and I think that's the key. If you are afraid eternally of Christ coming, then you are damned. But if the fear is something that is kind of transient as you move from fear to doubt to confidence, that, that's different. And that's sort of where Luther gets here. And there's actually several things in this portion of Luther's writing that I, I, I actually grab hold of um, in, in my regular life. This makes more sense to you then. It does. And one, one of the things that uh, I really like about this is as you work your way through this, he starts out with, yeah, you're damned. You know, give up the ship. You're done. And it's like, okay, well, wait, 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 wait really? And he comes back with, well, you're, only if you're eternally like Evan was saying, only if you're really, well, okay, that's, now things are getting sort of murky, right? And what he says, and then he goes, he, he goes into um, the, in paragraph 45, he taught, he says that this is a promise because your redemption is drawing near. And he said, Christ gave us that promise because we are afraid. Yeah. And so, so of course, we're going to be a little bit afraid of judgment of the end days because without Christ, without Christ, it's a scary thing. Right. Without Christ, it's a scary thing. And so now Luther's saying, but you know, you have to see past all the terrible things that are happening and grab hold of this promise that's found in verse 28, that your redemption is drawing near. Hold on to Christ's words there. And, he, and then in, in paragraph 46, he, he shifts the blame for that faithlessness from the individual to poor preaching. Godless preaching creates fear and it hides the promise. There is this incredible indictment that Luther has against preachers who do not point people to the promise, but keep people in the judgment of the law. Right. And, and so it's basically, you know, his, his indictment is against those preachers who use this reading and readings like it to manipulate the, the flock. He says, when people do not preach the gospel correctly, but only pursue hearts with commands and threats, they drive them farther from God and they make them angry at God. And I think this is 
in Luther's time and still today in our times a problem. That there can be that inspirational speaker that with commands and threats uh, like a whip drives a group forward. But it ends up in the end making them so angry at God for driving them that way. They get angry at God for pushing them that way. They don't see it as an invitation to walk with God. They see it as almost, I've got to run as fast as I can because the hounds are catching me. And this is one of those things, there's a, there's a point where, and I was talking to somebody, and this was on my mind, and they were talking about you know how they live in um, their faith. Uh, their faith causes them a lot of anxiety. They're you know very, you know, they, am I doing the right thing? Good, bad, blah blah blah. All the, and I, I, I said, you know, one of the things that Luther points out is if you live in that anxiety, there's a good chance you're the victim of poor preaching. You know that you the 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 gospel is what should be pointed to, not the law. You know that. That uh, when if you've had I don't know what your history has been whoever you, you know, but you know think back and have you had preacher after preacher after preacher who point to the law and don't bring the gospel if that's the case that's poor preaching you know you you need to the the gospel is what this is all about and that's the end point that and he that, points to not just uh, preaching but then he talks about prayer and he says. From all this, we see how few there are who pray the Lord's Prayer correctly. They may do it unceasingly, but they would prefer the day of the Lord never comes, which means that they must be doing it the wrong way. Because you're praying in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you pray that prayer unceasingly, but you don't want it to come, then you've been taught the Lord's Prayer wrong. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's this, there's a lot of, what this just this little couple of paragraphs here where he touches on that sort of allowed me my personal life to go back and sort of look back to the preaching I've experienced over the course of my life and my attitude toward the law and the gospel and sort of reevaluate it in this light that this is really preaching God's word is about God's ultimately about God's forgiveness exposing our sin absolutely you know we to look at ourselves honestly but at the at the end of the sentence is an exclamation point of god's forgiveness and that's that's if if you don't end with that if it just sort of goes dot 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 you know law 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 dot 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 yeah. <laughs> it just never do this ends. do that yeah do these things and you'll be fine do that and everything will be great this whole idea of it a sense of accomplishment Right is is such a lie. Right, and so so Luther uses this this almost as a pivot point, where and and verse and uh, paragraph forty nine and fifty, he says, and I really like this. If you uh, yet he who feels such fear ought not despair. And this is a, such a far cry from you're damned. If yeah. you're afraid, you're damned. Yeah, <laughs> and, and now he's moving it to. If you're da- if you're afraid eternally, you're damned. Now he now goes. If you feel this fear, don't despair. But rather use it wisely. One uses it wisely if he permits such fear to drive and exhort him to pray for grace. So now I'm at the spot where I'm afraid, but my heart is being led to pray for grace. This is good. Yes, and this is something that you know I. I 
I've, I've used, I use myself this, this idea of when, when I feel anxious, Christ says, don't feel anxious. If I feel anxious, pray for grace. Mm-hmm. If I feel angry, pray for grace. If I, you know, there's, there's an answer to these things and it's, it's not, it's not just don't be anxious anymore. Right. It's not, don't be yeah, like, that's going to happen. You know, don't be angry anymore. Uh-huh. Right. You know, that's not going to happen. That's the command. The contrast to directing you to more commands is to invite you to see that God's with you. Right. And, and, to, and to engage in a conversation with him and, and ask for his help. And I, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I have been shocked at how quickly those prayers are answered. And you might find this helpful, Mike. I have, if I'm not the anxious one, but someone else around me is anxious, it's not so helpful to tell someone, don't be scared, (laughs) right? Right? Or don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. But instead to understand there's something that's happened in their life that's brought to them to this spot. I'm going to pray that I could be an instrument of grace in this moment, rather than just making them feel guilty for being afraid or making them feel um, unworthy for being anxious. That's not going to get us anywhere except make them feel worse. Yeah. I want to be an instrument of grace in that moment. Luther's now going to talk about unwise uses of fear. He says one uses fear unwisely if he only increases it and remains in it as though he wanted to be cleansed from sin through fear. This leads to nothing good. Not fear, which must be cast out, as John says in 1 John 4, but love, which must abide, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, will remain on that day. So basically what Luther is saying is that fear must be cast out. And, you know, you know referencing First John. Yeah, driving us to love, driving us to pray to God for it, not driving us to more fear. Right. All right, let's take a beer break here. Uh, today, what beer are we featuring? Uh, this is uh, Founders Solid Gold Premium Lager. Right. I, I thought it, I, I didn't think we did this one before. We but might have, but if not, I'm glad we're doing it again. This is kind of Founders um, Big Pack Beer. Yeah. You know, you're not going to buy this in a six-pack. You're going to buy this in a 24-pack. It's almost like an all-day type drinking. You know, this is a... Founders also has their all-day... All-day IPA. All-day IPA. This is their lager. Uh, This is what they say on their website about this beer. Our brewery was built on an attitude of no regrets. An attitude of taking risks to bring the best beer possible to our fellow renegades and rebels. Never brewing to style, but always brewing what we want to drink. Our take on a classic... Solid Gold is a drinkable premium lager brewed with the highest quality ingredients, challenging what a lager can be. That's something we won't regret. I, I mean, that really sounds great, but it's a really ordinary beer. <laughs> I mean, they talk about brewing a beer with no attitude or regrets, enjoying our time with our fellow renegades and rebels. Never brewing to style, but always brewing what we want to do. It's an ordinary beer. It's an ordinary beer. And that's okay. It's a good beer. It's a good beer. It's got, I guess it has, um, okay, if you're, I guess the competition would be like a Budweiser. um, Yeah. Or a Miller or a, and so it's got a lot more body than those. Um, So going up against uh, the other popular log loggers in the field yeah it's got a lot more body and flavor than they do a lot more but yeah. 
it's it's a typical pilsner. It's a typical lager. Amer- it's a typical American lager. Um, one interesting thing I think is that the last beer we featured, they listed the ingredients on the beer can. Oh yeah, yep. this beer does not. Oh, it does not. It does not, and that's true with a lot of beers in America right now. Um, you you you, you, you want to try to figure out what's in it? You can't. Yeah. Yeah. Except for that one where we had they advertised it had coconut water, and I didn't really need to tell me that. <laughs> you could taste it. <laughs> could taste it. I didn't want to know. I was sad that I knew I had drank coconut water with my beer. Yeah. Um, so our beer break. Thank you, Founders Solid Gold, for making a renegade, rebellious, ordinary lager. <laughs> I'll take it. It's good. It's good stuff. This is actually my go-to beer. You know, if, uh, if I'm just sitting around the house and I want I want just a good, solid, yeah. easy-to-drink beer... This is what I'm drinking. Yeah, there so, we go. So this, and I like it. So continuing now with the second Sunday of Advent Gospel, Luther is now going to be commenting on Luke 21, 29 through 31, these words about the fig tree. And so Jesus told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see from them and notice that the summer is near. So also when you see these things beginning, know that the kingdom of God is near. There's multiple parables about fig trees and bearing fruit and cursing a fig tree. This isn't a fig tree that's going to get cursed. This isn't a fig tree that's out of season. In fact, this is a parable about the very normal, ordinary tree that lets you know the seasons. So... At the beginning, it says, truly, I say to you, and one of the things Luther points out is, is that this is way, Christ's way of saying, okay, stop, pay attention, this is important. Uh, and that's in, I think, paragraph 55. He says, therefore, Christ wants to make us certain and wake us up so that we, we await the day when the signs appear. And he talks, um, I forget where he said this, but I, I caught it here someplace, where he said, Christ says, this is important. And, and so the, the, the question is, that Luther is asking is, you know, well, okay, why, why does the Lord make his words so firm and precious and sternly confirm them beyond measure with comparisons, oaths, and tokens of the generations that, they shall, that shall remain with them and also that heaven and earth shall pass away? Uh, and so it's basically why did Christ go into, why does he say, you know, first he gives the promise and then he says, truly, I say to you, the generations will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth. So he's really like. It's a culminating I, section here. Yeah. And, and Luther points out that one of the things to keep in mind, this is gospel. It's comfort. This isn't a parable about fall or winter, bare, dreary days when leaves are falling off the tree and we fill with despair. No, he likens the arrival of the coming of the Son of Man to the arrival of spring and summer, a happy, joyous time when creation's budding forth and happy. We are being directed to have comfort, not fear. So we saw all these signs yeah. of the sun, the moon, the stars in the sky, uh, the nations in distress, the people in distress, and the Son of Man coming in glory. But then the next thing he gives is us is a parable about the arrival of spring. Yeah, right, and you know the, that the the and then the second. So the first is a word of comfort, which is that spring is near. And then there's a, a, a second promise that the kingdom of God is near when sin and death are taken away. So this is this is in addition, and this is where Luther, I guess, in as a philosopher, the you know these small distinctions. It's important that they, I guess, 
for me as a layperson, it's like, isn't that real similar? You know, it's you know, you have the the original promise that Christ gave, um, where he he says your redemption is near, and now now he's saying the kingdom of God is near when sin, sin and death are taken. I guess those are two different things, though, isn't it? But he's amplifying in both of these good news is arriving. Right, right. You have the redemption is is actually your redemption is one thing. And the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is something second. So the redemption is the comfort of your heart, that I am no longer in debt, I'm, I'm secure. And then the kingdom of God arriving is now what does it look like to live in that security? I would almost see this as the contrast between justification and sanctification. You have redemption, you have justification, and now as the kingdom of God is arriving, the holiness of that justification is starting to be experienced and lived out. And how does sanctification look? Spring, summer. Things are in bud. Uh, things are happy. So then Luther says, Therefore, dear man, examine your life, probe your heart to ascertain how it is disposed toward this day. And this is, a, I, I, I highlighted this part. Do not put your trust in your own good life, for that would soon be, con- that would, that would soon be put to shame. But think of and strengthen your faith so that you are not frightened of this day as the condemned and crooked are. But really, it's it's having faith in Christ. It's yeah. don't look to your works. Don't look to what you've done. Because that's going to keep you in fear. Right. And being afraid for eternity is being damned. Right. If, 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 if we're constantly looking, and this is the, this is the corrosive aspect of, of, of works righteousness. You know, because you know, one of the big problems that we have, and I know this is a problem I've had over the course of my Christian journey, was, okay, Christ saved me, right? And I, I, I embrace my redemption in Christ, and I don't want to sin anymore, right? And so it's like, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to screw up anymore. I just don't want to, right? And then I do. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, and so it, that's, then it's like, and then I do again and again and again and again, and I keep falling down, and I keep falling down, and I keep failing. So in that moment of failure... Are you filled with fear that you can never get up again, or are you filled with comfort that Christ is going to lift you up? And that's and that's the that's, that's the, the pivot. That's the pivot. It, it, there's like this period, especially early, at least for myself, early in my Christ, my Christian journey, where there was despair over my inability to such a sense of defeat. Yeah, it, it, it's like you know, you did all this for me. You know, it's been great. And I can't, I can't, I, I just am not worthy of it. <laughs> and it's like, a, the, and there's, it, you almost have to get to a point where you finally realize, you know, well, that's sort of the point. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of the point that, of course, you're not worthy of it. That's why this had to happen. You know, that's, that's why the sanctification it's not like there's an, there, and that's where I, I think when Luther talked about in the, the three, Luther only had the two uses of the law, right? And then you have the, the third use of the law, which was introduced in the formula of Concord. That's a whole controversy for another episode, Mike. <laughs> well, in, right. Okay. But, but at least for me, I found comfort in, in going back to my baptism mm-hmm. and, and, and going and, and looking at it. And, and having just having the third use of the law just be 
the, that cycle of always going back to the first and second uses of the law, where I'm constantly going back to my baptism and being reborn again in Christ, where I sin, I fall, I, 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 and I'm constantly in this cycle of I never, I never do completely learn the law. I never completely am able to use it as a guide. I am never able to successfully use it in the third. The third use is one I can't do. You know, the third use of the law is something I can't do. And so, you know, I feel more, you know. Yeah, this is the spot where that struggle of uh, the law is always going to accuse me. But as a preacher, I don't stop preaching the law to guide you. Right. And and that's the that's the conflict that exists in the third use of the law. So let's just kind of define some terms here. So uh, the the first use of the law is going to be that that sense of uh, we're going to use the terms mirror, curb and guide. The mirror, the first use of the law is to show me my sin. As a mirror, I see myself. When I look at the law and I examine myself, I see how I fall short of the glory of God. I see where I have fallen down. The second use of the law is the civic use of the law, how God governs and cares for society by preventing uh, society from going off the rails. I I flipped around. Well, curb mirror guide. Anyways, this is the way I'm going to show it. All right. (laughs) So, yeah, you're right. First use of the law, the curb, the second use of the mirror. Okay, so either way, let's attach to the words mirror, curb, and guide. So the mirror, that sense of examination, the curb, that civic use of the law, this is the way that that God uses the law to show us punishments. Yep. You mess up, you get punished. Right. So this is uh, largely, I don't want to do this bad thing because I know that it's expensive to get caught. Right. Uh, curb. And then the final one is a guide. Um, this is the one that has had lots of discussion about, is there a role and a purpose for the church to use the third use of the law? If the law always has the power to accuse me, can I ever as a preacher have the ambition to guide someone through the law to good behavior? And the struggle with this is that I, as a preacher, cannot control how a person hears the law. Right. They may hear it as a mirror. They may hear it as a curb. They may use it as a guide. Uh, but if I can't control it, do I not use it then? Is it uh, I, I out of say, my control? Yeah. And I think one of the big mistakes is when you talk about the, the second use of the law, it's the idea that that the law shows us you know shows us the need for Christ and that it's that's the end of the story and i think that that's where uh, you know that's not the end of the story we always have to return to the law use it as a as a mirror again and again and again and return to Christ again and again and again and if we want to call that as a guide that's mm-hmm. fine you know i i think we're in a an area of semantics yeah i i, I I believe that there, that the that the preachers should constantly preach the law and constantly pe- preach the gospel, and that, that it's never done because never done. I, I and if that's if that's what the thir- if when people talk about the third use of the law as being constant this uh, this 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 green light to preach the law absolutely yeah um, you know and so there's there's there is uh, all I'm saying is that. For me personally, 
that mirror of the law is one yeah. I always come back to. So, okay. So if you want to read more about the third use of the law, Article 6 of the Formula Concord is the spot to look at where yep. they talk about it. And they define there, the law of God is used first to maintain external discipline and respectability against dissolute disobedient people second use to bring to such people a recognition of their sins so it's good that you kind of corrected my order there first use is the curb second use is the mirror third this is how formula concord defined the third use law it is used when those who have been born anew through god's spirit converged to the lord had the veil of moses removed from them they live and they walk in the law and he's and then they say a dispute has arose among whether the third and final use of the law should be preached and I, uh, yeah, and I'm all, I'm good with that. So long, you know, if that's the like I said, uh, mm-hmm. for me, that's always coming back to the second use of the law. The, but that's just the way I think about it. Is mm-hmm. that that the third use of the law is actually just sort of a continuation of the second use of the law, and the the constant driving back to our baptism. And that's you know where where Christ comes to us in the water and saves us and grabs us for his own. And that's that's how I look at it. But that's, anyway. Uh, it, it looks to this question of the reason why it's kind of like, that's all I've got to say about it is there, there is this sense of cycle of looping yes. that can happen in this conversation. And you're like, all right, I've said something, but wait. And this looping happens on purpose because as much as I want to be someone who lives in the new obedience... There are moments I live in a dissolute, disobedient world, and I need to hear the law as a, as a curb against gross misbehavior. There are these moments when I want to think, I've got it all figured out, and I'm fine. Don't talk to me about it. I've got it figured out, and then I need to hear the law as a mirror. Right. And then there are those moments when I say, I want to know what is godly behavior. It doesn't mean I'm good at it, but I do want to know what godly behavior is. Right. And, and yet, I, I don't you, want to grieve the Holy Spirit anymore. Yeah. There's a, this desire. I want to do know, right. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, but I know I do. And and that's and and there, there there's a period, at least for my own personal Christian journey, where I was not willing to quite accept that. Yeah. You know, and that's that is a period of the Christian journey. And I don't know. I don't think I'm I'm unusual. That's a period that we're really susceptible to legalism. So uh, the writers of the Formula Concord add this caution about the law and why we keep looping into this struggle of, do I talk about it? Do I not? Where is its place? It says, the law does not teach how and why the good works of believers are pleasing and acceptable to God. The law isn't how I become good and acceptable. And whenever I use the law as uh, this is what is godly, I start to use it as thinking this is what makes you righteous before God. And, and there's a risk there, and that law gets manipulated into this is how you become pleasing and acceptable to God. Right. But the law never has the ability to make you pleasing and acceptable to God. That's always and only the work of Christ. Exactly. And that, and that is the, the critical point that that's the hump you have to get over in our Christian journey, because there's like this period. Okay. I'm good with Christ doing it once for me, but I want to take it from here. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, you have to finally realize, Oh no, there's a hump. I have to get, there's the, you know, we we're never there. And, and that fear that is, that we're talking about here, the, the fear of the end days, the fear of, of, you know, not being good enough. You know, that Luther talks about when he's, when he's talking about this, 
um, where where you know I think we were talking about it is it is uh, according to Luther. Uh, okay, to help us, it's better to assume that the last day is tomorrow. Oh, no, I'll take that back. <laughs> but there was You'll a, find it. Yeah. But it, the coercion of the law isn't that you're afraid to become more afraid. Uh, this is the risk of the law. You're afraid that you haven't done enough. Let's lean into that and do more. Right. Fear does not defeat fear. And, and it's important to hold on to this, to this promise, the promise of both, you know, not just we talk about uh, redemption, you know, the, that moment of redemption. Now we're in the area, area of sanctification. Wanting the day of the Lord to draw near, wanting everything that's holy and perfect to be here, and yet knowing we're not there yet. So I must then fall back into my redemption. Right. It's almost as if I think of it a little bit as a rubber band that I know I'm redeemed. Then as I stretch closer and closer to the day of the Lord, I'll get this ambition, think I've got it all figured out and I'm doing it great. And then the rubber band snaps back and right. I don't have it all figured out. I'm back at my redemption. Right. The next section, let's go back to Luther's comments now on this uh, sermon text. Uh, Luke 21, 32 to 33. This is that question of when. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth are passing away, but my words do not pass away. And, and so here, Mike, in paragraph 54, he goes, Why does the Lord make his words so firm and precious, sternly confirm them beyond measure with comparisons, oaths, and tokens of this generation? You were kind of looking at this section earlier, and, and, and that look at this exclamation point in all of this. This is happening. It's not just a comma. It's not a period. Exclamation point. This is happening. And it will appear in a world where people think there's been no signs. It will appear in a world where people haven't believed in him and haven't been ready for it. It will appear in a world where the elect of God are even starting to doubt such God and signs. But it's going to happen. Right, right. So why this exclamation point? It's, It's good to not assume that the last day is some long in the future day. It could be. This generation might not pass away. Right. But Luther, now Luther does go, he has this little sidebar um, where he talks about this generation was that specific generation of the Jewish nation uh, where he talks about when he says... Not nation, just Jewish people. The Jewish people. Yeah. You know, the Jewish people that that they wouldn't pass away. Um, uh, And what he's talking about is that that portion of the Jewish people who refused at that time to uh, believe in Christ. And that he said there will always be, you know... A token. A token that will The not people be. who crucified Christ, there will always be, always be this token of people that are not converted. Right. And that's always going to be. Um, so this generation of people who are not converted will stick around and will not pass away. This is actually a pretty good hermeneutical jump that you make from were they mistaken and when the end times were going to arrive those first christians were they just wrong when they heard jesus say this generation will not pass away and i've heard this that people will say that the early christians thought the end of the world was going to arrive in their lifetime it didn't arrive and so then they made up this whole christian religion to explain why the world was still going on okay and in contrast to that luther makes this point that this generation will not pass away is not referring just to a a person who is 40 years old and then 50 years old, then 80 years old. He's died that generation. He's talking about a generation as a, 
a character of people who are unconverted and are wanting to crucify Christ. That kind of person, that generation is not going to pass away until these days take place. Right. We will have these people around us. Similar to maybe the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And we will have weeds. Yes. Yes. Even as we have wheat, we will have the weeds. Absolutely. Um, It goes into, uh, at the very end here, he goes into these medieval concerns that I don't know, you know, sort of Aristotelian logic type stuff. Um, And at the end of it, uh, at least what I got of it is, uh, yeah, Luther saying, don't worry about all that. Yes. So we're going to skip by all that, I think. And then in a lot of these church postals, he'll then add on another section for allegory. And this looks at the style of preaching in Luther's time. There was some basic like law gospel preaching, but then there was this effort of preaching that would always try to be a secret key. Uh, This is what you see in the text, and this is what it could mean. And a lot of that kind of allegorical reading of the text existed in the early church fathers. And I think Luther is somewhat honoring that type of hermeneutic, that interpretive of the text. And here he'll look, starting around paragraph 59, uh, he'll talk about it, the secret meaning in this gospel. Now, going on about allegory, just one moment, and I think we might have talked about this before. There, there is, you know, when, when Christ um, talks about, he gives the parable of the, of the, of the seeds. and the He does interpret. He, he has allegory in there. But he doesn't do that for every paragraph. He doesn't. But there's, you know, so Christ himself employed allegory. And so I think the early fathers sort of followed that. Unfortunately, they went really off the rails. Spinal tap turned to 11. (laughs) Exactly. And and so it was, you know, the the church, the church uh, has pulled away from that Mm -hmm. uh, and and really said, okay, we're all done with allegory. It can, it, it is too hard to control. Luther was one of the first to really say, you know, okay, we really have to be careful with allegory, but he always includes it. Um, And so, and it it basically is what I see as I read through every one of these postals has an allegorical section. And he's always rock solid. And okay, this is what I think it is, but it's always concrete Christian teaching. It's not like he's going off and making new doctrine with this stuff. It's not like he's going just to say, you know, it's like Christ is Christ is our, our redeemer. He is like the sun, you know, the, the, the things like the that. moon is the church. It reflects the sun. Yeah. The powers of the heavens are the leaders of the church. They may shake in distress, but they can. The powers of heaven are still at work. The sun losing its bright, brightness. The gospel is not being preached. The moon losing its brightness. Faith and love are expiring in the church. Stars are falling. There are Christians who are monks. They were the stars of the church, and but they fell because they relied on their works. There are those who are fainting with fear because they have the torment of the falling stars, uh, the the storming winds and the wrecked raves, the secular estates. Uh, are around us, the powers of heaven, the spiritual le- leadership. You can see this allegory. It's not that far away, but in the what? end, he uses allegory not to give us some sort of secret reading that gives us better salvation than other people. It's right. not that kind of, it's not a Gnostic exactly. secret reading as much as a, this is what these things could do to help us maybe remember, remember Christ, the, remember the church, remember, remember the our sins, remember our struggles. Yeah. Uh, and, and what I liked about this one was at the very end, he says, and the fig tree is at the end, there will be a burst of true gospel. That things are going to again bloom. Things will come and bloom. And so, so, and that's sort of, 
what he's what he's saying is that you know the the, the allegory is basically taking um, <clears throat> established Christian teachings, taking this reading, and sort of putting symbols to establish Christian teachings so that they're easier to remember. And that's really what Luther does with these this last section of each one of these. And I, I sort of like that. Yeah, it's a different thing. When sometimes people talk about allegory, they're afraid of a, um, a secret reading that gives you a better reading. And that's not quite the way he uses it. That's not it. how he's using it. No, and that's, that's why it's helpful to look at how he does allegory. He's giving preachers... If you're going to do allegory, this is the right way to do it versus what someone else might say. I have to tell you, Mike, his last sentence is really strange to me. He says in paragraph 68, the planets with their gangs will not believe any of this. (laughs) I am am confused. Planets and their gangs. I mean, I feel like maybe at C.S. Lewis and Paralandria, it's... I don't know what the planets with their gangs means. So if you go back to where he talks of oh, this is the it, powers of heaven, calling back the leaders into the, of the church. So it's, it's going into the allegory reading. It's going into the allegory. So the, All right. Yeah. So that makes sense now. It's the, the Pope and his gang is what right. he could have said. The planets, the leaders of the church, their gang, the cardinals. Yeah. All right. Right. Thank you for that. <laughs> See, I was going to leave this episode all confused. Now I've got clarity. Uh, We are glad you joined us as we studied Luther's second Sunday in Advent Gospel Sermon Commentary, The Winter Postals, um, published recently by CPH as a continuing publication of Luther's works. Uh, Through all of this, we, we got to enjoy a good beer. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Cheers. Cheers.